0: Hello, and welcome back to the Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, and in this series, Peter Stalin and I draw on our many years of working in the financial markets to chew the fat about current topics of interest. Whether it's stocks and shares, politics, diplomacy, or even books and films into which we sometimes also wander, we hope that you'll find some value in our friendly but often very different perspectives, one continental, one UK centric, on the big issues of the day. Well, Peter, we're resuming our conversations about the markets. We last spoke four weeks ago, at which time there were raging concerns, as there are still today, about a whole series of different dimensions of things that are going on at the moment. We had the war in Ukraine. We've got soaring inflation. We've got central banks tightening their monetary policy, prospect of higher interest rates, And the markets uh, at that stage were still trying to come to terms with what all that meant. And I think I recall you saying that they were a very complicated situation, all these different competing factors coming into play. Four weeks on, are we any clearer about uh, what's happening in the financial markets at the moment?
1: Morning, Jonathan. Very nice to be back. Yes, the answer is, of course, there has been quite a lot of development in the last three or four weeks since we last spoke And clearly, the Ukraine war is still an overriding influence on everything, really, on geopolitics, on the energy markets, on the rates of inflation, and, of course, on the bond markets, and, of course, on the central banks. And wherever you look, whichever stone you turn up, it's not nice what is there. So in many ways, it's a perfect storm what I call the triple whammy, the triple whammy would be the COVID resurgence. And I think the COVID resurgence in China is very important for a number of reasons, including the risk of social unrest, which I understand is brewing. Secondly, the war in Ukraine, which is getting nastier and nastier. And of course, thirdly, the hawkish central banks who've all completely changed their mentality practically overnight. And so it's a perfect storm. Wouldn't you agree? What's your definition of a perfect storm?
0: Yes, uh, pretty much this would be it, I think. That's what I was expecting you to say in answer to my question, and it's certainly one I would agree with. Perhaps we should try and disentangle one or two of those threads. There, so, I mean, I think start perhaps uh, not with a war gruesome and horrific, though that is, as it's now entering this new phase where I think the outcome is uh, not perhaps as hopeful as uh, has been so far with the Ukrainians' superb resistance to date. But let's start with the central banks. I mean, as you say, they've suddenly rediscovered the old religion, have they not? I mean, they've gone back suddenly. They've kind of had a mass conversion on the road back from Damascus, I suppose you could say. uh, And they're now kind of red hot on on inflation again, which many people think they should have been earlier. There were a lot of warning signs, a lot of warnings you know, last year, particularly um, when the Americans embarked on that massive stimulus plan. In combination with monetary easy monetary policy, I think that will be seen by historians as a as a serious mistake and now they're kind of talking tougher than ever uh, and I guess the question is you know are they going to overdo it? Do you think that's a possibility I think it's a distinct
1: possibility because Jonathan I'm in the very small minority camp, maybe not that small actually of people who think who doubt whether monetary policy is the correct medicine for um, rampant inflation, which at the end of the day doesn't come from demand pull uh, influences, but from cost push. Um, We all know what they are. Um, They've all got to do with food and energy. If you strip out food and energy and look at core inflation, it's kind of relatively tamed. You could even say it's been peaking. So I think the Central Bank of Europe Uh, Mrs. Lagarde, I think she is in that camp a little bit as well. She doubts whether hiking interest rates aggressively is going to prevent the cost side increase. Whereas the Americans, of course, one after the other are capitulating now and becoming hawks. But what I find interesting is if you look at the yield curve in America, it's pretty flat, really. And from time to time, it inverts. And um that, for the likes of you and me, we remember that as being stagflation, where you have a combination of stagnation and inflation, and the inflation bit is mirrored in the shorter maturity bonds, and the stagnation bit in the longer maturity bonds. But clearly, there is a race going on here between rising yields and rising inflation rates. And at some stage, somebody has got to win that race. If inflation wins that race, it would be quite good because it would point to a peaking of inflation. And if bond yields stop going up, it could also be a sign that the market is anticipating
0: an improvement in the inflation picture. It's very unusual. It is very unusual, indeed. And what's also, I think, perhaps worthy of mention And this has been pointed out by a number of observers is that, you know, the approach that the central banks are taking is no longer all of a piece across the world. So, for example, we've got the Japanese have just reiterated their policy of trying to effectively keep yields around, you know, not not rising too far. Uh, So they're doing one policy, whereas the the Americans are doing pretty much the polar opposite. uh, And the Europeans are somewhere in between, I guess. So, um, yeah, that is that is interesting. Uh, And that's going to have, among anything, it's going to have a significant or you think would have a significant impact on currency movements, apart from anything else in terms of monetary flows, uh, fund flows across the world. At the moment, dollar is still pretty strong. Pound is sinking quite dramatically. The yen is sinking quite dramatically. Uh, Do you have an explanation for that? Or would you think this is just an adjustment phase that we're going through here?
1: You've put your finger on a number of points. First of all, on the I'm not saying you're assuming that, but you're voicing the general assumption that the external value of a currency is dependent on the direction of its rates of interest or even the level of its interest rates. Young people often say that, but older people beg to differ because otherwise you would have the Swiss franc as being historically the weakest currency ever, closely followed by the yen. But a look at the charts will show you that in stressful times, it is precisely these currencies with more or less zero interest rates that are well bid, with a big exception of right now. It's quite difficult to get one's head about around why the yen today is so weak. The yen was viewed always as a safe haven currency. I would have expected it to be very strong at a stressful time like this. It may have something to do with the cost of hedging against the US dollar going up because the interest rates are going up in America. I don't know. As far as the pound sterling is concerned, well, it's pretty inevitable that the pound has got to be drifting down over the years. It started the day after the Brexit referendum, and has just been slowly but surely melting away not only its external value, but I think also its significance as a world trade currency, and and so on. So it's quite complicated what's going on. And of course, the US dollar is the big culprit, because the strong US dollar drains world liquidity, because it means that there are not enough available dollars outside the US system. You can track all that, of course. And that's very bad for emerging markets, especially those bonds that are Non-investment grade, whose yields have shot up above investment-grade bonds, so it's all a liquidity squeeze that's going on. Wouldn't you call it that, Jonathan?
0: I think I would. Yes. I mean, I wasn't. I'm not subscribing to any particular theory myself about uh, what drives these things, but I think it is a factor, and it's certainly been a factor. That I think it's had an impact on the uh, equity markets in particular, because they, you know, at the margin, that does have an importance. What's happening to the dollar, as you say. Uh, and in particular, on emerging markets, which remain very under the cosh, so to speak. So if we look at the bond market, though, I mean, pretty much, as you say, shorter term bond yields have been going up. There's no sign yet that they've stopped. Let's put it that way. They have still seem to be rising. If you look at the charts, they still seem to be in pretty robust form. But there has been this uh, flattening yield curve, as you say. Uh, So it's still a very confused picture. Let's just briefly mention the Ukraine war then. I mean, what's happened, as we know, is that the Russians failed in their initial strategic objectives of you know, capturing Kiev and installing a puppet government, which appears to be what their objective was. And now they're refocusing on the east and the southern part of Ukraine, where they have, it appears, finally obliterated Mariupol into almost nothing. And they have a good chance, I guess, of taking quite a lot of you know, some territory along there, which is uh, their revised objective. But I guess from the world's point of view, uh, if you like, taking a rather pragmatic approach to this, the worst outcome will be if this just drags on for a long time, because then that does have continuing implications for energy prices and uh, not least food prices around the world. I mean, I was reading about the extent to which global food supplies and global food prices are affected by What's going on in Belarus and Ukraine and, to a lesser extent, Russia uh, is very significant. And that could easily generate consequences all around the globe. Uh, would you not agree with that? If we get a period of high and uh, sustained uh, food prices, which looks almost certain next year, that traditionally has produced political tension, popular disruption in many countries. I mean, is that a concern for you? If the war drags on, as it appears to do, that could become quite an important factor for all the things we've been talking about. I completely agree. And the biggest
1: danger is for those countries on the southern coast and the eastern coast of the Mediterranean who are almost entirely reliable on food deliveries from the war region. And of course, if they go hungry... Mm -hmm. I hate to have to remind myself of what happened in, I think it was 2011, the Arab Springs. There's nothing more dangerous than a population that's going hungry. Uh, That's extremely dangerous. And the Russians know that very well. And it could then have, of course, a knock-on effect as far as the refugee picture in the European Union is concerned, and also in the UK, if you get waves of refugees like you had some years ago, a few years ago, triggered by that. So that's very dangerous. Another, um, if you like, geopolitical danger is the fact that the Russians are, tr- I mean, it's not for nothing that they're gaining control over the Black Sea because they want to gain control through the Bosphorus and through the Dardanelles into the Mediterranean. We touched on this subject last time. So in anticipation of today's chat, Jonathan, I took a look at how the Russians behaved during the First World War. And it's very interesting. I studied it in a bit of detail. And I discovered that the big picture was that they were trying to get access to the Mediterranean through the Bosphorus and through the Dardanelles, in order then to have a grip on the trade routes around the world. This is what it's always been about. And it's again and still about that today. And that I view as a pretty dangerous situation, because it involves the Turks and the Turkish positioning vis-a-vis the Russians. And they're also juggling a whole lot of balls in the air, the Turks. And the other thing I noticed reading this book on the First World War is, of course, there's nothing new about the barbaric atrocities that are being perpetrated by the Russians. It's always been like that. I grant you that every war on every side, there are atrocities committed, unfortunately. But the Russians have taken that to a new extreme, but there's nothing new in that. The only thing that's new is the extreme, not the atrocities in themselves. And so it's quite Interesting looking
0: at history. So, I think when we uh, when we talked last time about the role of Turkey in this, I mean, last time we talked, there was still some hope that uh, President Erdogan was going to mediate with Putin. And uh, of course, the Turks do have this obviously hugely important strategic position in the Mediterranean because they do control the Dardanelles, at least, can close them in principle uh, under long standing diplomatic conventions. But I mean, it, let's be blunt about this. I think the situation in Ukraine has not, I mean, it's been, you know, there was a lot of optimism when the Russians were initially repelled, but it's not going to go away, is it? I mean, the there's very little chance that the Ukrainians are going to be able to stop, I think, the Russians achieving some of their objectives in southern eastern Ukraine. You still see some military experts saying that that's possible, the Russians will overreach again, or they're simply just too incompetent to see it through. And they have, of course, lost their... Flagship in the Black Sea, which is a bit of a humiliation for them, uh, but there's no sign that uh, Putin is giving up on his ambitions. Let's put it that way. In fact, he's, if anything, he's sort of doubling down. It would appear to me. So I think that's a that's a tricky backcloth, and if that you know brings us back to where we are in the markets. I mean, what do you think the outlook for the equity markets is from here? This is obviously an area of keen interest to you, uh, because you manage equity funds, global equity funds, uh, and we've had this. Well, it's been interesting. You know, year to date, we had a, a sell-off and then we've had a, bit, a little bit of a recovery. And I, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see there could be a bit of a, a rally from here at this precise moment. But it, if, if it is, it's more likely to be a, a bear market rally, as far as I'm concerned, than a, the start of you know good times really again. Do you have a sort of general view on that before we talk about the actual specific kind of stocks that are being affected by what's going on? I do have a general view although some of my general
1: views in the last few months have turned out to be appallingly wrong. But my general view now is that the rally in the equities market, which you say could happen, and I agree that it could happen, is dependent on bond yields stopping going up. That's very important. As I said, there's a race between inflation and bond yields. And somebody at some stage, one of those two, is going to have to, or naturally will, win the race. And it is once bond yields have stopped going up, that's the time when you can begin to be a little bit more optimistic uh, for equity prices. And whether that turns out into a dead cat bounce or a bear market rally or not, is something we'll have to see when it happens. But the brutality of the collapse in bond prices, which has never been This brutal, ever since records began in 1973, I read somewhere. I mean, even for Moses and Methuselah, it's been a very, very dramatic collapse. And that's where I got my predictions so abysmally wrong, because you asked me on various occasions in the last months whether I thought that bond deals are destined to go up, like uh, when the quantitative easing stops. And I firmly replied several times, I don't think so, because I think there's a marginal perennial buyer, which is essentially all the pension fund industry and the foreign investors into US treasuries. I always mention US treasuries because they're the leading instrument. And that that these marginal buyers will mysteriously keep the yields relatively low. Goodness, was I wrong. Because I said that when the yields were in the region of one and a half to one and three quarter percent on the 10 year treasuries, today they're scratching three percent. Why I was so wrong, I don't know. I'm in the process of trying to find out. But nonetheless, one has to have a view. Is the view that yields are destined to go up because we're in a new era of inflation and we've just got to live with it? Or Is the disinflationary trend, long-term trend, which has been prevailing up until, if you like, the middle of COVID, whether that will resume and life will go back to normal within a certain number of months or maybe next year? That's the big question. I wonder what your answer to that question is, Jonathan.
0: (laughs) Right, well... uh... I say this with no uh, no great joy or pride, but I mean, I think I have been slightly more bearish than you for a while. And I, I have worried about bond yields for a long time because we know that they've been, to some extent, to some extent, artificially suppressed. And by artificially suppressed, I, I don't just mean uh, easy monetary policy, but also the fact that pension funds are, you know, kind of forced to buy all these bonds, even though it makes little economic sense then to do so by regulations and so on that seemed to me that at some point that has to become unsustainable. And I do think that the, well, just looking at it from a historical point of view, and I also look at these charts quite carefully, and historically, we have moved into a new phase. There's no doubt about it. As you say, the 10 years up to 3%, roughly, and the break-evens are up to 3%, you know, for five years out and so on. And it's going to take quite a lot to get them back, I think. And it may be, if it is a recession that gets it back, that would be very painful and very not very helpful for the equity markets, let's be clear. So I don't see necessarily a very easy way back. And some of these longer-term trends that you've talked about, like demographics and so on, I mean, there is some evidence that they are beginning to wane a little bit. Obviously, globalization, we think, is going to go a little bit into retreat because that's one of the factors because of, you know, these supply concerns and so on, which have been highlighted by the war and by COVID. They're going to go into reverse. Demographics is beginning to slow down a little bit in terms of the population growth and the relative age dependency of different populations, uh, and so on. So I fear that I can make quite a good case that actually we may just be, even if we just normalize back to a level of positive real interest rates, that would be quite a significant move uh, and would have very profound implications for uh, equity markets in particular, plus bond markets. I mean, I, I worry that we are moving to a new phase, let's put it that way. And certainly, you and I are just about old enough to remember uh, well, even 1973. The only reason people talk about it being the longest, you know, the worst bond market is because we don't really have sufficient data to go back before 1973 to be really sure about what happened before. So I think the world is facing a very, very significant potential crisis. And I think unfortunately, I am very bearish, but then so is everybody else, as far as I can see. If you look at the sentiment surveys, everybody's very bearish. And that, of course, gives me pause, because that's why I think we might see some kind of rally, because I think the sentiment is so negative at the moment that I actually wouldn't take much to get us a little bit of a bounce back. But I'm not one of those who think that um this is going to end particularly well. Having said that, I think, you know, to come back to something I mean, which you're more expertise because you follow it more closely than I do, but if you you know, so far, looking at earnings, company earnings, which are what drive the, the valuation in part of the companies you're investing in, so far, the picture from the earnings has not been as bad as, as some people like myself might have expected. And indeed, there's still some positive revisions going on, notwithstanding some spectacular disasters like Netflix, which have suddenly come to the surface. So I don't know what do you think about that. I mean, are the various factors that drive equity market performance, and you're always mentioning them. You know, liquidity valuations and earnings and balance sheets and so on. Uh, what do you see in the evidence from the results of the companies you're investing in? Is that a cause c- for concern for you? The evidence from the companies that we are investing in, and remember,
1: they're quality growth businesses, they're non cyclical, and they have all the attributes which we call the 10 golden rules. We've had one and a half earnings seasons since the beginning of the year, the first earnings season was for the last quarter of last year for Q4. And it was a very good earnings season all round for our companies. And now we're sort of halfway through the Q1 earnings season. And we've had as good as no negative surprises in terms of all these attributes like earnings growth, sales growth, margins, return on invested capital, and of course, guidance for the future. On the whole, we have been not even pleasantly surprised because that's what you would expect from a quality growth business. And so for me, you know, the difference between today and at the beginning of this year is that you've got these very sound and very nicely growing businesses who are very much uh, long-duration assets, who very much benefit from what I call the law of increasing returns, they don't suffer from the law of diminishing returns. And so they deserve a higher valuation. So what you've had since the beginning of the year is that some of these share prices have been hammered, but the earnings have not justified that hammering. And so as difficult as it is, You can only adopt this investment program if you're able to take the really long-term view. If you're not able to do that, and not everyone is able to do that for perfectly understandable reasons, then this is not for you. I, as you know, I'm a great disciple of this investment philosophy. So to me, these investments suddenly are presented on a relatively silver plate and... (laughs) 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 And so I'm on the buying side, but then you'll accuse me of always being on the buying side, and I will agree. I am always on the buying side.
0: Well, you are. Your philosophy requires you to be essential, and, and that makes a lot of sense for long-term investors. The issue you talked about last time was whether or not, you know, if the earnings are coming through fine, and these companies don't have obviously particular worries about rising bond yields because they don't have, they have very strong balance sheets. So it is really a lot about inflation, but in particular, about pricing power. Last time we spoke, you said you and your team were intensely studying how far pricing power might impact on some of these companies. I mean, some of the companies presumably have higher input costs relative to their revenues. They all have good margins, but some will be more affected by inflation in their input costs. Have you been able to come to a kind of firm conclusion about this? I mean, have all the companies you've got still got pricing power, the same pricing power, or is it too early to say?
1: It's not too early to say, and they do all have the same pricing power. The question is whether they're willing to use that pricing power and to ramp up their prices. Some of them do, some of them don't. But don't forget that the input costs would be probably more important for, obviously, for industrial companies. But we are invested to a very important extent in what I call the knowledge-based economy where things like input costs are slightly different. You've got to look at it from a slightly different point of view. Then we've got certain investments where there are input costs. Uh, Certain branded companies like Nike or Adidas or Inditex and so on who do suffer from input costs. What we are analyzing now, having done the pricing power study, what we're studying now is the extent to which inflation is harming various aspects of the business, whether it's capital expenditure, or uh, whatever it might be. And above all, the management mentality, whether the management of these companies, the managements of these companies realize that what counts are the results in real terms, and not in nominal terms. Because in the past years, there was no, practically no difference between nominal and real. And so the modern-day manager didn't have to look at that part of the equation. But now he does have to be aware of that part of the equation. And it's not only the managements of the companies that have to be aware of all this. It's you and I as investors or as economists. You know, if you have GDP growth of 3.5% or 4% nominally, which would be a very healthy rate of growth, but then it's all wiped out by inflation. And in real terms, you have a negative rate of growth. It does rather complicate the picture um, for the first time in many years. And so the old investors like you and I have to rack our brains and put our memories to work and, and remember what it was like at the time. And the younger investors have to learn to adopt a slightly different mentality. So it's Not lacking
0: in complexity, but this is the work that we're doing as we speak. It's a very interesting point you make that because I think both about management and investors. I mean, I recall when I spent a year at MIT looking into some research about about what happened in the 1970s. And one of the conclusions of coming out of that research was that actually investors did get it wrong. They weren't thinking in real terms. They were still thinking in nominal terms. And that was one reason why the market reaction was quite so severe, because there was a kind of, if you like, this illusion that what matters is is the nominal, not the real price. I think that's a very interesting point. As you say, we've got a whole generation of investors who've never seen that before, and whether they can adapt to that and whether, the, as you say, the managements can as well. I think that's a very interesting point. I hadn't really thought about that until now, because it does obviously lead you to different ways of behavior. One aspect of that might be, you know, the impact on share buybacks. Do you think that uh, we're going to see share buybacks continue? I mean, presuming some of your companies do engage in share buybacks because they're generating lots of surplus cash. Do you think that's going to become something that ought to change or sh- or is changing? Because that's been one of the other props underneath the market, if you like, that, that the corporate has always been the, the marginal buyer of equities up till now.
1: Yes, I have the feeling that buybacks tend to follow the market. In other words, when the market goes up, the propensity to buy back is higher than when the market goes down. And they should be buying back their shares right now, but they're probably too scared. The share buybacks are often also done for the wrong reasons. In our arena, yes, they do buy back shares, but only as a last resort, you know, pay out dividends or buy back shares, when they cannot deploy the cash in a more productive way, in a way that where they achieve an even higher incremental return on invested capital. So it's the last thing they do is buy back shares or pay out dividends. I can't really answer your question in the wider sense, but I suspect that when share buybacks dry out completely, that's probably as good a time as any to go in and buy some shares. You know, what worries me from a slightly wider perspective is that the pension funds who I, you know, always come back to the pension funds, because they are perennial buyers of bonds. But every time they buy a bond, they uh, destroy money in real terms, in real terms. And the only area where you can I mentioned that a bit earlier, where you can still make some real or now you can make some real returns is if you buy very dodgy and risky junk bonds, who have had such an incredible price fall compared with sovereign bonds, sometimes up to 10 percentage points higher than the comparable sovereign bond. But I mean, you can't expect the pension fund industry to weigh in on junk bonds, because they would be doing nobody a great service there. So it's a very complicated situation. I have to reflect more on your question about share buybacks. I'll consider it as my homework
0: for the next time. <laughs> well, it is one of the oddities, of course, as people like Terry Smith always to point out that you get more buybacks when shares are very expensive than you do when they're very cheap. And that's uh, there may be reasons, maybe psychological. It may be because you need the cash for something else, but uh, because you're facing a, a serious downturn in your in your company's performance. We're coming to an end now at this point, but just thinking about the big company. I mean, I've got a couple of questions for you. One is, you know, it's not a, not a surprise to me that we've seen sort of Netflix blow up. And the fangs, as always, like all these kind of little acronyms, you know, those companies that dominate the US market, but actually they're all di- quite different, really. And some of them are still doing well, like Apple. Others are doing very badly, like Netflix. And lumping them together was always a bit of a nonsense. So it's sort of made for good headlines. I wonder if you've got any thoughts about that. You know, the kind of, the companies that have been dominating the US market, everyone said it's been very concentrated around these big names and they're all suffering now. Uh, and then I also wanted to ask you about right move, for example. I mean, do you think that the housing market, we haven't really talked about the housing market at all. What do you think the outlook for the housing market is in the current environment, given we've got rising mortgage rates now beginning to come through in most of the developed world? You know, Is that going to have an impact? Is Or alternatively, is uh, housing as a real asset going to be a good place to, to put your money, uh, either directly or indirectly? So I've thrown two questions at you there, Peter. I'm sorry to say I should have asked them one by one, but... Uh, I know you can handle that.
1: No, you've thrown three <laughs> questions at me. Number Three, one, actually. Okay. It's three. <laughs> number one, Netflix. Number two, Rightmove. And number three, the housing market. Um, I won't go into any great depth on either Rightmove or Netflix. We've got a very deep in-house expertise on, uh, Rightmove. We don't have any in-house expertise on Netflix. Um, and I would say to try and answer your questions, I suspect you'll find the answer to the net Flix debacle in the Netflix balance sheet. I suspect that it's a very indebted company. And so clearly, when rates go up, it's not exactly. And it's not the first time that Netflix shares have behaved like this. When there was a sort of taper tantrum a couple of years ago, it was exactly the same thing. Um, It's been particularly brutal this time. I think the share price collapsed to the tune of, of 40%. So I think
0: you'll find the answer in the balance sheet. They're also, I think, to be fair, they're losing, they're saying they're actually losing subscribers now. So there's more, basically, there's more competition coming in as well. That's another factor for them from Disney and and, and Amazon and people like that all competing with them. Yeah, but plus the fact that if you've
1: got to decide between keeping the heating going or your Netflix subscription on the basis that you can't do both, you're going to dump your Netflix subscription before you turn off the heating or the air conditioning as we now get into the summer. So I think that there are these hard choices that are being made. The right move, as I say, I don't want to go into the details, but it is in a very strong position, the company. And um, it's a platform. So I'm not sure that there's going to be a lot of disruption to their business, uh, depending on whether house prices are going up or going down. As far as the house prices themselves are concerned, well, of course, as you know, they've been the traditional hedge against inflation because they're yeah. real, real assets. So you've probably got a conflict between rising house prices because we've got rising inflation. But on the other hand, house prices, and I think that's especially the case in, in the UK, have been rising very strongly. And so they can't go up forever. But I think probably on balance, if you're an old school economist or investor, you'd probably feel that the value of your house at the moment is safer in a rising inflation environment than in a deflationary environment. But Jonathan, I'm sure you know much more about that than I do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I was interested because it's a question that's actually been on my mind a little bit thinking about my children and everything else and what they're going to do. Uh, and it is quite interesting because I think I, I was looking at a Bank of England study the other day, which was done about three years ago, and tried to explain the rise in, in prices. And they said basically the primary factor was not actually lack of supply, which is always the argument supplied in, in the UK is too difficult to build houses, but actually was the decline in real yields so has been the main driver of rising house prices. Uh, and they've been quite significant if you track the the performance, you know, in relative terms, it's explained very nicely by the decline in real yields. On the other hand, you've got this issue of that everybody now has remortgaged and uh, they're used to paying, you know, 2% on their mortgages. And if that goes up to 5%, that is going to be, obviously, they've got fixed rates and so on. But um, that's always been a problem in the past when that happens uh, for the price of IC. So there's sort of two, I think, conflicting pulls going on here. And it's, uh, I, I don't know how it's going to work out. But um I have noticed that, I mean, it's not just right move whose share prices, they're down quite a lot, aren't they? Compared to uh, where they were. And Looking at things like Savills and people like that, they're also down quite sharply. Uh, different business, obviously. So I don't know. I'm concerned about that as well. Uh, but then I'm concerned about too many things. I think that's probably my kind of thing. My final point I'm going to, we're kind of, we're skirting around the issue because I think basically it is still very fluid and quite hard to see how this is going to play out. We're going to have to be sort of data dependent, all this kind of thing. But, um, you know, there's some very big things going on here all at the same time. Uh, and it's testing, I think, everyone's ability, as you were hinting last time, to actually map a course through this. And uh, I'm not sure, unfortunately, that the central bankers are any wiser about what their best move is than uh, than we are. If you liked right move
1: on January the 1st, and their business has not been disrupted, then you should like right move even more to the precise tune of 21.89%, which is the share price decline. And that statement, even if it's a little bit superficial, is a sort of general statement uh, if you've got really high quality businesses. What I think you and I could touch upon maybe next time, which is more of a macro picture, which is the worry in Europe that if interest rates are jacked up by the ECB, what that is going to do to the national indebtedness of the various countries. Yesterday, you will have noticed that President Macron was re-elected. One of the criticisms that Madame Le Pen was bombarding him with during the three and a half hour debate two days before, which I watched, was that he had increased the national debt by 600 billion euros which was a lot more than the GDP uh, that had been created. And I think that that is a a very worrying thing, because if interest rates are jacked up too aggressively by the Europeans, that could make a very big difference not only to the countries like Italy and Spain and Belgium and one or two others, but also to the uh, single currency bond yields, the famous spreads between Italian bonds and German bonds. So, I'm pleased that Madame Le Pen didn't win this election, but this problem here is, is looming very large. And I wonder about the degree to which Madame Lagarde is influenced by this political aspect of the national debt, even though she shouldn't be, but I bet she is. So that's a space we'll have to watch very carefully, Jonathan.
0: Yes, I'm afraid we have to come back to that topic because the Eurozone has been a, a big topic and it's, uh, you know, a combination of, uh, higher energy prices and, uh, uh, and possibly higher interest rates is certainly going to have implications for the, for the debt across the continent. Well, that's a rather gloomy note to leave it on. But let's uh, hope that we do get some sort of rally in the next couple of weeks. And we'll look forward to uh, reviewing where we are again uh, quite soon, Peter. I look forward to that very much. Thank you very much, Jonathan. All the best.
1: You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or m M&M and podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.